Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of the Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets, where we tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. In this episode, we're going to tell the story of Dashboard Confessional. Chris Caraba started Dashboard as a solo side project in the year 2000 while he was in the band Further Seems Forever. His first album, The Swiss Army Romance, was originally released on Amy Fleischer's Fiddler Records, and people took notice almost immediately. I became aware of him from a cassette that our booking agent, Andrew Ellis, had given me, and we were playing shows together soon thereafter. I spoke to the man himself about that time. So I was thinking about when I met you, because I think when I met you, let's see, it would have been 2001. Remember we met when I was in Further and you were down in Florida doing some Florida dates, so you put us on oh, the right, show right, right. or maybe... Yeah. Okay, so this is like around 2001. When did Swiss Army come out? Actually, I... It came out in 2000, so I think that show was in 2001... I think it was like January of 2001. Yeah, so I don't remember. Great. I know it's it's hard to it's early. Maybe February. I think it was February because I was out on tour with. I remember I was out on tour with Face to Face, and you gave us three shows with New Ams. Mm-hmm. So we left off that tour for three three days, and then came back in to that tour. Yeah, so that was February 2001. You're right. Okay. So how did you get hooked up with? Because I guess I I think of you coming to Vagrant and to hard eight through like that tour for some reason or are you already working is that no i, remember, I wasn't I working that. with them for a time some time to come after that but i did meet them all through you guys and the hot rod shows that i would play or go to and certainly like when i was out with face to face i met rich maybe cohen on that tour too um but i started to get to know like vagrant records more in-depthly than just being a fan of the label Who? through you guys how did you get the face-to-face tour? Who was, who was instrumental there? Just I they think liked it, you guys? I think they just liked us, but I don't think it was a vacuum, in a vacuum. I think Amy Fleischer and Rich had both played Trev, at least Trevor, the, the, the songs, and he thought there was an element of, of I, uh, I think in the spirit of punk rock adventure, he was like, yeah, I get this. Let's, let's take, take them out. I can't really speak to his decision on that, but... If memory you, serves. I think that was what happened. It was Rich and and Amy, maybe showed him at some point the record. Were they working together? Amy, Amy and Rich. Well, Amy and Rich had gotten to know at some point. I don't know when Amy went to Vagrant Records from Fiddler. There oh, were some things in between, but remember she worked at yeah, I forgot Vagrant. About that. She actually worked at Vagrant before I was on Vagrant, and and I I, I know this because she was able to send me some free records. Nice. Always good to have somebody on sick. the inside. So sick to know a guy or a girl. <laughs> The New Amsterdam's, or New Ams as it's commonly called, was an acoustic-based side project I was doing between Get Up Kids tours. I did a tour in early 2001 with Hot Rod Circuit where we all played acoustic and traded songs on stage. We called it the Hot Amsterdam's. For a few shows on the East Coast, we asked Dashboard to join us. I spoke to Rich Egan, who was the Get Up Kids manager at the time and Vagrant's co-owner about that tour. We didn't even touch on New Ams. The fun fact about New Ams was that was how I discovered Dashboard. Right. Ellis, I was talking to Chris about that because Ellis was like, hey, can this guy open up for New Ams and Hot Rod Circuit? And I was like, yeah, it's good. Well, it was, uh, I remember it, yeah, I remember distinctly they're like, okay, we need an acoustic act to open up. And so I was looking and then I was, you know, whatever, I was filing through the list of submissions and then Fiddler, Amy came in and she had been trying to get me to listen to Dashboard for like a couple months that she'd been working at Vagrant. And I wouldn't because I, I was like, we have too many bands. I can't like anything else. I can't sign anything else. And she's like, well, here, I think you'd be perfect. This is a guy I've been trying to get you to listen to. I think it'd be perfect for that tour. I'm like, fine, I'll listen to it for the tour. And that's how I, I was like, holy shit. And then I call Chris the next day. And then, uh, you know, we or the next night and we were on the phone for like three hours. And then I flew out to see him at Club Chrome opening for Newfound Glory and Hot Rod in Midtown. And then I signed him the next day. But if it wasn't for the new Amstor, I'd, I'd probably still be blowing Amy off about listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I think it would have found a way to your ears. It probably made its way into my, into my stereo. Yeah. You got to remember at the time, playing an acoustic guitar in this scene was really an outlier. I mean, I was just doing it as a side project, so who gives a shit? But Chris was actually doing it for real, opening for punk bands and hardcore bands and winning over their crowds. So I don't know if this comes up with you as often anymore, but like at the time when I heard that you, because I learned about you from Ellis, because you, only a handful of times Ellis has been like, this is a band I think I want to work with. Let me know what you think. And that you were the first one that he ever did that. And I was just like, yeah, this is really good. Like when you, when I heard that you were on that face-to-face tour, I was just like, you're going to get murdered you know like you're you're gonna get absolutely killed like they're i mean their fans are like social distortion fans and i mean pop punk's not the most like chill 
you know, scene in general, you know, but it just like, but you, from what I understand, I didn't see you on that tour, but from what I understand, you went out every night and you just fucking did your thing and just crushed it. You know, I did. I, I got really lucky with those fans. Um, I think coming up in like a punk and hardcore background, I didn't think, oh, I'll get killed. I just thought, yeah, this is like most shows I go to. There's some, something oddball at most shows I go yeah. to or something less like the headliner. I should say not oddball because it wasn't so odd if it was happening all the time. The other thing was, I just thought, don't worry about it. You're, it's a, you're not doing something that your goal is for everybody to like. So if you know some people aren't going to like it, when, before you even go out there, it's less daunting when some people don't. And then you can sort of zero in on the ones that do mm-hmm. while you're up there and kind of find your people. And, um, and it encourages you to do just as the, the most and the best that you can with your moment, with your few, few minutes on stage that you have when you're opening. And it translated to just for the stars aligned. Yeah, got lucky. I, well, I mean, I think that there's also just this um, thing about when, when people use the word emo, you know, even when they're like, when it, when that first kind of came out, it was just sort of like, well, that just, you're just talking about sincerity, you know, like that's just, you're talking about like actually communicating how, how you're feeling. Like, like it's like country music, you know, like it's just three chords and the truth or whatever. And I think that you definitely have always been like incredibly sincere with what you're doing. And that comes across when you, when you play live and, you know, it comes across in your records too, but I, I could definitely tell it when you, when you play live, like I, just glad those those people were able to pick up on that. <laughs> well, give those give those folks some credit. I think that like uh, to give those some them more more credit than they've had in the past. Maybe is I think punk rock fans and specifically face to face fans they are drawn to the sincerity in punk rock. There's a lot of sincerity in punk rock. I agree. There's a lot of insincerity too. There is, <laughs> there is, there is in all things. So from that tour, <laughs> it's really funny, Matt. Sorry. <laughs> I have no I don't know what, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so that tour, I remember hearing about that tour and then we played those shows together and then so wh- where does it cuz it's your second album is the first one that's on Vagrant, right? Or is it mm-hmm. Yeah. So what drew you to that to that and now refresh my memory but Amy put out the first Swiss Army on her label, right? Amy Amy put out Amy Fleischer put out my record the Swiss Army Romance on her label Fid the Records. That was the first way it was released. Then it was then she sold it to Drive Through Records who I was having a conversation with about possibly signing there. And um, and they thought it would be a good idea. They they liked the record enough that they wanted that one. So they they made worked out some kind of deal with Amy, and they put that record out. And and then our I, you know I was honest with them that I was going to look and talk to other labels. It was an opportunity that I had, and I was going to make sure I found the the most right home for what I wanted to do with my what I thought would be relatively short career. So I thought I'd better take it seriously so that the experience was the truest one I was going to have, you know? And in the conversations I had with different people like Vagrant, they were far and away the label I wanted to be at. So they, so I signed a Vagrant. Let's see what that was. I think it was maybe March. Maybe it was March or April. I can't, I can't remember anymore when things, so the, the time frame between the Swiss Army Romance and my first record on Vagrant, which was The Places You've Come to Fear the Most, is really short. So I want to say, I hadn't, I don't think I'd signed yet when, when you and I I met at Brownies. Was Rich? It was at, was Rich at that show? I think he was. Yeah, I think he was. That could have been the show that I really got to know Rich better. And I met him when I was opening for Hot Rod, Midtown, and Newfound Glory in New Jersey at Club Chrome. Oh wow! So I met him. But I had met him before that. He'd seen my band before that, and I think I really talked to him the first time, maybe on that on that tour, on those couple of shows. Maybe that just that New York show. We never thought of that. There was safety in numbers. Yeah, you know it's. It's funny that that's how I ended up with signing Caraba was after that Club Chrome show. He was like, he came off stage and he was like, um, hey, I really want to talk to you, but I got to find somewhere to sleep tonight. And I was like, hey, I got a, I got a hotel in Midtown. He's like, I was like, you and Mike, can, or you and, yeah, it was him and Marsh. I go, you can crash my floor. And he was like, oh, stoked. That's one thing I have to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> Little did we know. Yeah, right. Yeah, so uh, it was, uh, little did we know he'd be playing Madison Square Garden down the street from that very hotel room a few years later. Wow. I kind of just like, this isn't really about Vagrant, but like, uh, it was just something you kind of like had a throwaway thing there that you said you thought your career was going to be really short. Like, why is that? <laughs> I didn't, I don't know. Did you think your career would, did you think that, I guess I knew that I was going to do music for my whole life, right? But I didn't think it would be my, I thought it would be my, that everything would be in service of making sure that happened, which I guess is what happens when you, when it becomes your job. But, you know, I thought I would just have a job and I would have the mute that I would, you know, enjoy, but hopefully, but music would 
be the thing that I that I did outside of work. I don't know. I I don't know. Did you did you think like long term goals? Well, no, were realistic but, in in those days when we were that age. I mean, I, in well, doing music I, of all things, I didn't. No, but like I also didn't think about not doing it. Like I, you had already had a like a job job, you know, before you started touring. Like we basically dropped out of college first year of college to just start touring and never never really stopped. Yeah. So what I did was like I was in college and touring, and then in college and working and touring. I'm just saying I don't think being in the moment I wasn't cognizant enough to think about whether it was potentially short term or potentially long term. It was just. Oh, it just didn't strike me as like, it struck me as like a, a, I guess maybe because like I with further, we were one, we were like two things happened in further that maybe understand for dashboard that I wanted to just at least, however long the thing lasted, which is maybe a better way to say it. I wanted to make sure it had the best experiences as opposed to like just the best chances. So I, the two things were that one coming into the band, we knew we almost certainly had to sign to tooth and nail because four of the five guys had been in a band that signed a long-term longer term contract than they oh. then you might than I would have anyway um and they all had like those key man clauses or whatever they're called where like you mm-hmm. still owe them a record if they want it that mm-hmm. you do next and your whatever next band is so anyway we all did that together the other thing was I was certain with further that we were going to be, be a band a long time it was the closest we'd I'd come to finding people that would all want to row in the same direction and we all kind of also people kind of start to favor us in a way that it hadn't happened in, in for my band like outside of our hometown mm-hmm. which is a whole new experience as you remember and then it was over you know almost as fast as it felt like it started so so with the next thing I did, I just had that, that tr- even though the experience wasn't terribly long, I, I guess maybe that also aided the, my, my perspective on like, the, maybe this doesn't last all that long. So, and so I knew like one, I was lucky to have choices with a label and I was going to make the right one. And two, I, I realized like, this is amazing, might not last forever, make the right choices. So just like kind of tying it all back to Vagrant, like when we were first looking at labels and we were like dead set on signing to a major label because we're unhappy with where we were at and we were just like, you know, you can't go from one indie label to another indie label. That's ridiculous. So we we're like, well, we got to get on a major and everywhere we went, we were like, well, we need to have a key man clause for the A&R guy, you know, because that's pretty if, smart. That's very smart. actually. Well, I think we may have learned that from Rich. Um, yeah. You saw, I did too. You know, Rich had taught us like, you almost certainly sign with the guy, not with the company. You cut yeah. with the man or woman who's the, your A&R is who you're really but the, going could, to be working with. And there's hope, so many, you know, yeah, but there's so many, hopefully, hopefully they stay there. Yeah. That's, that's all you can hope for. And they don't. Yeah. No, they get fired all the fucking time. And so that's, that's why you want to have a key man clause. It's just like, if this dude's not the label anymore, then we, we get to leave if we want to, because you could bring in some chucklehead and like, you know, all of our shit's fucked at that point. But I never thought that at Vagrant. Like I never felt like this need to be like, oh, I need to make sure because it just felt like everybody was on the same team. You know what I mean? It was like it was almost like at Vagrant you had, I guess, Rich, who was, I guess, if there was an A and R there, it was Rich, right? Yeah, probably or Kevin. Yeah, Kevin for sure. Excuse me. Yeah, sorry. The A and R there would have been Kevin and Rich. I guess Rich was more an A and R guy than most companies had for for like somebody at the top, as far as an owner goes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, I think, but I think the fact that those two did that and. And maybe John to a lesser extent. Um, I don't think I don't think John did any AR. <laughs> I don't think he did with, in our era. I don't know. When I okay. said that, I was like, I I, I kind of meant like I don't oh. know what happened after the fact. Yeah. But they kept doing well. So, you know, they, they clearly, even if, though they didn't have Kevin, maybe eventually Rich wasn't as involved. They still kept doing well. Yeah. No, I guess Dan, right. Dan Gill and so and so on and so forth. Some Dan pretty amazing Wayne. people. Yeah. Wayne was amazing. Yeah. Um, but you had in that day, in that era, you had Kevin, you had Rich. And then you had everybody from Ryan in the, in the mail room who would go on to be a you know top guy at the label for whatever that hierarchy means to you you literally had the guy in the mailroom like pulling for you and making sure you had everything going your way and stuff like that so um that was a unique scenario and you didn't feel like you you're right you know i did learn a lot from rich like you know when you said like maybe it was rich who taught us i learned a lot about stuff like the key man clause from rich well he Um, had had he had had he had managed other bands on major labels so yeah but he was also like if he didn't manage you or you weren't his he was still like he still wanted to make sure you knew things that you might not otherwise Mm -hmm. learn at your at your young age which i I appreciated and 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 ellis was like that too, mm-hmm. you know, constantly teaching you how this business really runs and what you ought to know. It's great. great more, experience. Like, more like, more like, 
telling you, like commanding you to do things a certain way uh-huh. on Ellis's part. Uh-huh. <laughs> so what was it about? So, I mean, could you sense that like when you came to the label? Cause you said you, you signed in 2001, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I signed the record. I signed to, I signed in, and the record was released. It did, the next record was released in so 2001. Who was already there then? Cause that would have been the anniversary. I learned yesterday, the anniversary record came out in 2000 the first anniversary record came out yesterday in 2001 well so you guys were there and you guys had had um were saves or the trio there yet so this is who was there when i when i signed so when i signed face to face was there they'd moved there for from a major i think Mm -hmm. you guys were there although actually i think it was the other or way you know i can't don't 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 hold me to this order of this isn't sequential for like who signed when or whatever. But who was there was like you you were there, the get up kids. Um face to face was there. The anniversary was there. And I think you were instr- integral in putting that record out. They were yeah, Not they just, were on they were on our imprint. They were on your label. So yeah. then uh, there were a few other bands, but Hot Hot Rod was in the Hot Rod and Saves they were signing or or had signed, but it wasn't announced. And the Alkaline Trio, I think, was about to sign because I know that the uh, the trio and I signed about the same time. Okay, I think maybe I was the last to sign in that group. I think I'm so, pretty sure because I I'm sure they were. I remember them being like, you know, we had decided not to sign any more bands, and then they signed w- one more, which was Dashboard. So were you aware of like Hot Rod was coming, Saves was coming, Trio was coming? When you decided to 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 sign with Vagrant, well, I was aware from yeah. from the bands themselves, yeah, because we were all touring together or playing shows together or just friends, you know, various groups. Um, so I I knew um, from that sort of network of of pals who was going where they would they had told me, and there was a there was a lot of like people I respected and trusted signing to that label at that time and bands that I really, really loved. And I loved the idea of like, there was almost an identity overarching. Uh, sorry, there was almost, an, there was kind of an overarching identity. You know, each band was going to have their own career, mm-hmm. but there was a, there was a, it was a moment in time where I think we were all connected tertiarily. I see, it was all mostly through friendships, but. I see but was, that, I see that now, like from a, like I was friends with everybody and I liked all of your bands, but there was this sort of like on, on our end, or at least for me that I, I don't, at the time where I was kind of like, okay, hang on now. You know, like we, we, uh, you're signing how many more bands, <laughs> you know, just like all of a sudden. And now I know, you know, a rising tide floats all, all ships and that it was a really kind of like magical thing. But I, I definitely had a little bit of not jealousy, just sort of like maybe skepticism about it at the time. I'm just like, is this still going to work if everyone's spread more thin? You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's something that wouldn't have occurred to me from my vantage point of what was happening. Yeah, of course not. Where, where, you, where you had this opportunity that was incredible uh, in your career where you had these options of all these major labels and chose to go somewhere else because of the attention you were expecting. And I can't speak to whether or not you thought you got it in the long term, but you signed there with an expectation of the attention you were going to be get, getting, right? And um, yeah, and then, he, and then they signed all these other bands too, or a number of other bands. I don't know about all these other bands, but at the time it seemed like a hell of a lot, right? Well, it went from being kind of just us, <laughs> no motive, to like all of a sudden it was like, and then it was like this Vagrant America tour thing. Oh, was it yeah. not, was face-to-face not on I, like on the label when you were doing well, your I mean, signing? They were like when I talked to Trevor, like they were they were involved. Like they I don't think their record came out to like 2002 or 2000. I think it's like 2002. They may have been art they may have been on the label and Vagrant had put out like their vinyl and like, maybe that's what I thought. That's why I always assumed they were just well I mean for the longest time I thought Trevor was one of the owners. I was just like well he's just, you know he, they're just part of this label. Like of course they are you know and it's like but I don't think they actually signed for real until probably after like the year after you did oh i see um, but so so what's the what's the, the first record that comes out on vet your second record places you have come to fear the most comes out when let's see I, actually i have this information in front of me i did research dude i say like march 2001 march of 2001 and so hey that wasn't bad you gotta t- you gotta give it up there okay I, I can't believe i remembered it was march <laughs> and so then what just what's the plan at that point just fucking shoot for the moon like take every tour do like that was the goal anyway so the goal anyway was i was gonna shoot to tour with all the bands i really really loved um they all most of them happened to be on one like you know one two three three labels just sort of happened that way maybe four and a lot of them were on vagrant the bands i wanted to tour with already you know previous to even signing there so i really want to the because i think 
wasn't the Vagrant America tour that summer of 2001? I think it might have been. Yeah, that sounds right. This all happened so fast, dude. This is crazy. You know, Mm -hmm. like all these things are so much more spread out in my head. So, okay. When did your record come out? Uh, It was the the year before, right? Something Right Home About came out in 99. And then... Oh, it was two years before. Yeah. And then On a Wire came out in 2002. So we were in the thick of writing On a Wire when the Vagrant America tour, when we went up to Chicago to play those Chicago Vagrant America shows. Yeah, were you writing in, back home? Were you, yeah. or were you somewhere else in the studio? Okay, I see. No, we were just writing, writing in Lawrence. But that was when we start, started debuting some of those new songs we were writing, and Ellis said we should call the song Walking on a Wire Career Killer. What? <laughs> <laughs> that's so... Ellis, that's the most... He's, uh, like, he named your record. Yeah. It's like, with, thanks, thanks, bud. <laughs> wow, I thought those songs were, were great when he played them most and received well, but I guess he had a different interpretation of them well he was he it didn't kill our career but definitely it drove a wedge you know for a little while which is fine you know it's we did a creative thing so how long was the vagrant america tour because it was you hot rod trio so the whole the tour for the most part if i'm remembering correctly the only bands that were on the entire thing were saves day dashboard maybe was no motive on the whole thing? I don't know. I wasn't there. Well, I thought maybe you had that piece of paper in front of you before. I thought maybe you God had no... Yeah, I didn't look up anything about Vigan. Fucking hell. Okay. Well, yeah, so... <laughs> but but the way, you know, the poster that I that I remember, you know, I can see it in my mind. So if I remember correctly, the bands that were on, there was only two bands that were on the entire Baker in America tour. And that was uh, Saves a Day. And then Dashboard was on the whole tour. Select dates are featuring, you know, like, I don't know, many bands had like multiple legs of this tour. It's really long. It could have been like two months or something like that. Or maybe, I think if I remember, I think if I remember, it was like 22 days on, a day off, and then like another 16 days on. So something like that. It was kind of a bear of a tour. That, That hurts my voice just thinking about it yeah there it, there chris and i were run pretty thin at a couple of couple of dates but chris from saves the day chris conley taught me a hell of a lot about how to like keep your voice going for that that many days in a row on that tour you know that's a lesson i was gonna have to learn at some point and i was glad to learn it from somebody like chris who's pretty kind and not like you blew it get off the tour <laughs> <laughs> i think at the time too i remember it was kind of a big deal because it was a lot of people's first times in tour buses because I think the bands were sharing. Were you guys sharing a bus or am I? Yeah, we shared a it? bus. We shared a bus. We had a share bus, and um, and that was our first time on a bus. I think it was my. I think I'd been on a bus once. I think I'd like hopped on to say hello to you guys. No, uh, yeah, or maybe it was Newfound Glory. But I, I think I hopped on to say. I think I hopped on your bus to say hello at a show in Florida, mm. and that was the only time I saw a bus on the inside. I had no like goals to get on a bus, but once I was on a bus and there was like so many bands on that bus, it was a huge band share. The one we had, it was like half of Saves the Day, and then Dashboard, and then members of different bands would split up to to be on our bus. So <laughs> get, at one to... point it was Hot Rod Circuit, another point it was No Motive, and another point I think maybe one or two of the guys from Reggie was on there. That's hard to tell because the Reggie guys were all in other bands. So you know they were and the and the and the tour you know was also had like select dates, but that was like a lot. So some some of those cases it was a lot of dates. Like no motive, so there was also face to face and and um, get up kids Reggie um, the anniversary. We're on a lot of dates um, and who else? I'm not sure. I'm probably missing some people, but those were the ones I just remember from looking at the poster because a lot of it gets conflated in my memory to other bands, other tours I did with a lot of those same mm-hmm. bands. Yeah, we we were all kind of like working together a lot. It always seemed like I think Hot Rod Circuit really more than anybody. They were like everybody's like. I mean, they they're very they're a popular band, but they're almost kind of like a the the band's band a little bit. You know what well, I mean? You know what I you know people often ask me like how did that scene come together because some of the bands didn't make a whole lot of sense to play shows together on paper until you went there and saw it for yourself. And I people ask me like how did that come to pass? And I'm like, well, you know, a lot of people had faith in you know like putting a fun show on that was a little different. But a lot of the time it was just like friends of Hot Rod Circuit. Like yeah. all those bands were friends of hot, the guys in Hot Rod. And it's almost like without Hot Rod, they were they were they everybody loved their band. Everyone yeah. did. Everybody in a band loved their band and then and they were so friendly and they were so inclusive that they really they were just this they they were the linchpin that held a lot of the bands together in terms of like well you know we're having longer friendships than just like oh hey we're doing a couple shows together i'm really fighting the uh urge to do an imitation to andy but i'm not gonna 
Why? Why fight it? No, because I'll sound like I'm like I'm making fun of Southerners, and I'm not. <laughs> He's just got a okay, great. Fair. He, he I'm, interview, I'm interviewing him tomorrow, so <laughs> he can do it himself. Can you interview him as him tomorrow? You're pretty good at it. I can try. Yeah, I actually was think I was thinking about that too, and it's kind of like they were so like like generous to everybody. Like I remember going when we were on tours in 2002 when they were opening for us and we just went to Jay's house for 4th of July and it was like on the river we hung out with his parents and had a barbecue and yeah in Connecticut yeah rode jet skis in the river and it was awesome it was just so like like it felt like a family you know I still you know somebody needs to do an interview with Jay about his his um water skiing abilities excuse me wait I'm I'm unfamiliar with Jay's water skiing abilities oh well there you go planted a seed for future conversation I've seen him ride a jet ski like a badass but (laughs) so they hot rod wasn't on the whole tour I thought they were that's that's interesting well they they were a good they were on a good portion of it but I think it was like they maybe had commitments before that tour came into the conversation. That's something you'd have to ask those guys. But I, I remember it that way. Like they were on some other tour and came, had, had to leave. I know it was called the Vagrant America tour. Was it like, and it was, was it pitched to you as kind of like something more than just like a tour with saves? Like was it pitched like this sort of like, I mean, I guess it would have had to have been. It's like this yeah, sort of like, it was. It's like a branding thing kind of. No, know? it wasn't pitched to me like a branding thing, although. It probably was, I don't know whether, I don't know how the tour was conceived. I'd like to know if it was conceived as like a branding and identity thing, or if it just like came to be by virtue of the fact that like so many of the bands happened to be, and he was like, and they put it, put the pieces together later to fill it out. I don't know. Maybe. I always thought it was supposed to be kind of a vagrant's version of the warp tour you know well, I, mean? I think it was there i always thought of it at the or i remember thinking of it at the time you remember that compilations were a big deal back then and they they did some good compilations mm-hmm. the five years on the streets and i thought it was their compilation roadshow that's how i kind of envisioned it compilation roadshow is a pretty good band name maybe like a but, kind of americana sort of thing let's start it i'm in all right that particular tour because we only played the chicago date the first- you know it occurs to me that you could put roadshow at the end of any word as the, as the second word and you have a band name sorry it could have been the, the Vag- vagrant america roadshow i mean that would have been maybe it should have been yeah well, no one consulted me <laughs> I just remember because we we only played the Chicago dates because we didn't want to go on tour then because we were writing a record and it was the four nights in Chicago we still kind of refer to as like a lost weekend because mm-hmm. it was just it was just crazy it was like all of our friends at the same place at the same I time. honestly don't know how we survived that weekend uh, and then like Vagrant was being like super celebratory you know because it was like this huge accomplishment it was like two sold out nights at House of Blues two sold out nights at the Metro and it was like all these bands coming together and we were all friends. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was really. I can't think of any. I can't think of anybody in that crew that I didn't like. It was incredible. Like we had the we had the bands and their crews were all friends. We had the label that we were friends with that we trusted, and we had a lot of us had like Ellis, Mm -hmm. who was uh, and Rich and Rich. Yeah, as a team that we were working with, and they were all there. And it was a chance for us to like, for maybe the first and only time to really all be together. Weird. It's like a company retreat. So, God, it is like a company retreat. <laughs> I guess that's what adults do. I don't know. <laughs> I've never had a job. So, I don't, I don't, I'm a real job. So, or I haven't had a real job since in my 20s. I don't know. Good God. Corporate. Let's, let's do the emo corporate retreat. I want to do it just because it sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, did you sign to Vagrant first or did you start working with Rich as a manager? I signed with Vagrant first. I didn't start working with Rich as a manager until pretty far in. Did you have reservations about that? Uh, no, I don't think, um, I didn't have reservations, no. But it just, it just things, how would I say it? I guess, one, I knew, um, I did, it, I'm not sure it occurred to me yet that I needed a manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, I'm not, I mean, he was pretty committed when I started working with you guys as at, at like between his label that he had that he was working really hard on and his management is, you know, his management clients that he was really working really hard for. I'm not, I'm not sure that I was, like, I, I'm not sure I considered it an uh, option yet. You know, it wasn't like a, you signed to one and then thusly you would be picked up by the other. No, I, I didn't mean to imply that. I was just more like I was talking to Trevor and it's like, you know, it's kind of a the standard music industry advice is you want to have you don't want to have your manager and your record label be the same entity because it's a conflict of interest kind of. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I never really felt that way with Rich. And it's just got to be something kind of unique about him, I think. <laughs> 
you know, I, I absolutely never felt there was a conflict like having the same manager own the record label. I'm not sure if it wasn't Rich that I would have. I think if if I think it was something about Rich that made the, there be no conflict there. There really wasn't, in my opinion, looking back, any conflict there, at least in my experience. But I not you know I don't know that I I guess labels. Uh, the reason I'm vacillating now is I think like label services is like a part of management nowadays. Oh yeah, sometimes. But I think we were looking at it. As like, if you were like looking at the sto- historically, like the Motown model and stuff like that, mm-hmm. it wasn't a good idea sometimes. And I guess some other times it was, I don't know. It, you know, it can, it, and there's no one way to do anything. No, but it, I, I don't know what order it was for you, but for me, it was, I signed to the label. I was on there for a while. I talked to a few different managers, including Rich, and then decided that I wanted to work with him in that capacity, which I felt was different from the record label capacity. We were the opposite. We started working with him and he was actually shopping us around to major labels when that didn't pan out he's like hey how about this label like no (laughs) and then finally one is over so i remember on that bigger america tour it seemed like you were really starting to like take off you know like you were like there were more it was the first time that i remember hearing about like radio people coming to any of that crew of bands shows and stuff like that and like did you know did you notice that at the time i mean were you cognizant of that am i am i remembering that right you're remembering it right though i'm not sure that i cared all that much about that or knew that it was unique to me so uh, you know i i figured i had figured that like you know, we all looked up to like you guys and, you know, having, you know, you guys and face to face both being like more tenured bands than we were. Most of us, you know, we put out more records and had been more successful than us. And I just assumed that that was something that had happened to both of you for, for, for both of you guys. I think and it, I just thought it they, did for face to face. It never really did for us. But well, I don't, I don't know that I remember it correctly, but I guess I, re- I thought at the time that, it, that, that you had had those kind of folks at your shows. I just remember it being like, like being aware of it, but it not have it bringing anything to bear on my experience. Did you, that was the first time though, you're right. Well, I, re- I remember cause I, I, uh, I played, and if this is too inside baseball, we can take it out, but I was playing in Reggie on the West coast of the Vagrant America tour. I was playing guitar. I remember Rich asking, cause I think we were going on after you and mm-hmm. Rich, Rich asked as a favor if we would flip. Cause there was a guy, some, somebody was coming to see you, you play. And it was kind of like, you know, do it as a favor to Rich, do it as a favor to you. I kind of, doubt you even knew about it at the time but i just remember being like well that's weird i've never been asked to do that before <laughs> you know oh, I mean? man like, i've got it this is tremendous because what i remember and this is probably because i probably would have had a better show not knowing that there was somebody from radio there because of the different implications that brings you know one you were always struggling with like well i don't want to sell out you know mm-hmm. and then the other thing is like what if there was part of you that did want to do well because there was somebody there and then you but you, you know and then you crash and burn i was told that you guys had something thing and you need to go on earlier you needed to go on earlier than you were meant to because you had something after (laughs) yeah well i'm sure that was correct like that's the kind of thing that i bet was corrected like told the correct information you know like rich probably told me after the show hey i asked matt to to flop with you you know remember before when i said they had something they didn't have something i asked them because of this no and that's but but the only memory i really have like like that that is long since faded away the idea that like he told me after the fact but i do remember him being like oh they have to flip-flop and i remember thinking to myself oh i guess things don't really like change like, cause you know, when you're in a, like a, a local scene, that kind of thing happens all the time. Oh yeah. You know, just, Oh, Hey, we're going to trade spots. Is that cool? Yeah. Okay. If somebody asks you, you just say yes. Who says no. Right. So I, I just remember giving, giving that the, that was the thing I gave the most thought at the time. Like, Oh, I guess things don't change. That's cool. But that's good that he didn't tell you. Cause it's like, I mean, yes, technically he lied to you, but it's just like, it would have gotten into your head and it would have like, you know, probably wouldn't have had as good of a show. Yeah. I don't, I wouldn't have. And I would have like, I guess I wouldn't consider that a a lie as much as I'd consider that a favor. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. A lie, a lie is, I don't mean that in a bad way. No, I'm saying that in a, like some assessing who I am and who I was. Yeah. That was definitely a favor. You know, what's kind of funny that this makes me think of this. So we just did that with saves. We were in Europe. I guess it's, 2019. So just re- very recently, we were playing a festival and they were f- they were supposed to go on right before us. Like we- They were going out like three and we were going out like four. And Rodrigo's flight got delayed. And so he wasn't going to make it there till like 3.45 or something like that. And so we we just flopped with him. Just because like it's it saves, you know, like of yeah. course we're going to do that. I guess it doesn't change after all. <laughs> People still complain, but you know, you can't please everybody. No, but I would, yeah, I would do the same. So, for all you guys. Okay. Oh, so when we go back to the to the dashboard twenty year tour, whenever COVID's over, we'll just flip flop one night. Yeah. I'm <laughs> in. 
If you guys want to go on after, that's cool. Me. Like I, we'll, we'll be batting cleanup. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be there for the janitors who are, yeah. are cleaning up. Yeah, because I always have to like leave during your last song. So if you guys want to flip, I'm ha- I'm happy to do it. <laughs> I can, that way I can see all your I can see the last song. For, first of all, I finally so boring. Facts <laughs> uh, finding, I like that. It feels like a news podcast when you say that, and I feel important. <laughs> Okay, this this is kind of interesting then. Like, so like one of the things he says is like, what was like, describe your thoughts going into record and what was the reaction? And I guess I think of like, you've, you've talked about like where your head was at going into signing to Vagrant, like that you wanted to, you know, go somewhere and be a part of this thing. Uh, it's kind of interesting too, because you definitely could could have looked at it as like, I think this is going to be cool. You know, like, I, I think this, there's going to be something here. But like, what was the immediate reaction after you put out that, that first record on Vagrant? Like, I guess there wasn't that much like brand loyalty to the label yet. We kind of built that, you know? I think that would come in some time, but no, that wasn't the case. It was when I, so the thoughts going into recording the record, I think was the first part of the question. So my thoughts, I guess, so my thinking like going in to record the first record for them, which was the places you've come to fear the most was that it was the first time, I, you know, it was the first time I really felt us uh, honestly supported in what I was about to record for for a label since since my time being on on Fiddler, which was like Amy just by herself like believing in people. That's what made her record yeah. made her record label amazing. And I just had that same same sensation with the with those folks that like okay these guys believe in me and they're they're actually flipping the bill all the way. Pretty awesome. I hope it does well because it seemed like somebody you wanted to you know pull it all off for. Mm-hmm. And so when the record came out, I, it was still pretty early days. I I was playing a lot of shows. The Swiss Army was doing pretty well, and it was relatively. It was a relatively new record. You know, it only came out in October 2000. And although I do think Amy pressed some records before that, and we sold them around town, but it really only came out with distribution in October. And so by March, I had another record out. That's really fast. It's really fast, but it wasn't all that weird to me. Like the bands I like to put out a lot of like records. You guys put out a lot of splits, for example, and then EPs and then full lengths and so on. It's just like this continual release, and I loved it because it was like eventually what what you'd find with Spotify generations. You know, yeah. bands in the Spotify generation just kind of putting out more and more music all the time. And you guys, I think, should d- deserve some credit as well as like some bands that I liked from outside of our world, like Hot Water Music, put out just a ton of music all the time. When the first record came out, when when the places you have come, when the places you have come to fear the most came out in March, I remember that being the first time I ever heard anybody talk about sales. So I remember them remarking on the number it had sold, and I don't remember ever hearing that before. Like when we put a record out, say with further, you have a record out. That was yeah. kind of the thing. It wasn't That's like, oh, how whole... many did you sell? It was like you you had a record out, but it sold you know it didn't sell anything near what I knew like successful bands sold so but it felt like a success to me in that first week you know it's like oh wow there was like a couple thousand people that bought this record for my band you know with and not at the show it's pretty amazing but the thing that I remember was the second week I mean I guess things were talked about weekly although it was like a social scene too so we were talking all the time with the label and with you guys and with all the different you know within that circle of friends and label people that all kind of overlapped everybody's talking about exciting things all the time and that second week I just remember remember rich and john were surprised and encouraged that it might that this was that the places you have come to fear the most had done better the second week than it had done the first week i guess the inverse is usually true because it come out with a bigger bang and maybe peter off a little bit but they were and then it just kind kind of successively would just do a little bit better every week a little bit better a little bit better every every turn of every week until it was like a snowball Everybody was taking notice, even people outside our little circle of friends. The first night when we did the On A Wire tour and Superchunk was opening for us, that Jim Wilbur, the guitar player, is like, oh, you got to watch out for that dashboard kid. He's going to eat your lunch. Oh, I remember that. (laughs) I remember that. The Vagrant America thing seems to be like the the height of like those two years and like all those bands coming together and they were all friends. And then it seemed like Dashboard really started to kind of get ahead of the pack. Mm -hmm. First... I think first saves in the trio did. And I remember that like they were getting on TV and stuff. And I remember having like a conscious decision of just being like, okay, am I going to get jealous about this or am I going to be happy for my friends? And like having one of those moments of just being like, I'm going to choose to be happy for my friends. I'm going to choose to not like, let this bother me. And that's not, you know, it's something I'm not, I'm not trying to like toot my own horn. I just have like a really specific memory of that. But then all of a sudden, like Caraba was everywhere. Like Mm -hmm. I saw him on fucking CNN. 
Yeah. No. Yeah, he was, and he was. I, I one of the moments was uh, that I remember just pre when he got you know Madison Square Garden big was uh, the Katrina benefit, and he was he played live like they called us. They were doing that twenty four hour broadcast, and they called us to go. Hey, can he come into the MTV studios in an hour and play Ghost of a Good Thing? And he just drove down there in a cab and did it. And he was sandwiched in between Pearl Jam live from somewhere in Europe and like you know like prince or some other massive artist yeah. this is weird but uh yeah there was some there he had some interesting uh hugely crazy media exposure for well, sure it became this phenomenon i'm sure everybody remembers that like the crowd would started singing like louder than him like louder mm-hmm. than the band mm-hmm. and and the the funny thing too is like now you know i mean everybody i mean you guys always did it with dotty like you always give the crowd their minute to do yeah, thing. But it's a that hard, the hardcore show thing they sang the whole song for Carabo. Yeah. And it was uh, then, you know, everyone started or not everyone, but a lot of people started doing that afterwards. But that was really an odd, unique thing to him. And then I think that definitely helped grow kind of the legend of, oh, you got to be at these shows kind of thing. You know, I mean, it was happening enough for MTV to take notice, but buzz can be temporary. Hard work is what makes careers. So when does, okay, when does the MTV unplugged thing happen then? Is that, tell me that's in the same year because this is all, I think you, I, I think that, that was I think February this all happened. 2002, okay. if I remember correctly, was when we shot it. Could that be right? Yeah, that, I think uh, that's right. Yes, that's right. So the year ended in 2002, which was, a, in my opinion, like a really fo- pretty important and formative year for, for Dashboard. So many things happened at Vagrant tour wise, and they were putting out so many good records at that time. So essentially, and tell me, if this is correct you you basically you're on tour you signed to vagrant your first record comes out in march and then you basically just went on tour for a year i'd already been on tour for one year at that point straight when i signed in february i was touring even before my first dashboard record came out in early in i started touring in like early or mid 2000 so i had already been touring about a year and then i was on tour another full year but really really on tour like like never going home um for an entire year i was home the last week of december you know, I was at home for like Christmas week through like the first week of the year. Did you have that feeling of like this? I don't mean for this to sound crude, but like that you needed like, well, okay, the, the, un, the not crude way to put it would be like, we need to like strike while the iron's hot and like need to keep going. Even though, I mean, you, you can't tour, even when you're young, you can't tour that long and not get burnt out, you know, but it seemed like things were like, things were happening so fast and, and you were, you were hitting all these like kind of plateaus that like none of us even knew were, were it's just like you did an unplugged what yeah there was all this de- there was a it was a delicate ba- balance i'll be honest with you of um things happening really fast and things starting to happen for me that i couldn't ask you guys about yeah you know some of the other bands that i would have considered like well i've asked i should ask was always like you and trevor that i would think to ask about new experiences like well what was it like for you guys doing this what was it like for you guys doing that and then i was at this period where i was like off on a wing and i didn't i was having this new i was having experiences that were that i didn't know who to ask about yeah and so it was like instead of getting like bogged down in some like feeling of like it was never like well we've got to uh, you know you said like did I have that feeling like we could better strike while the iron's hot and I didn't have that feeling but I did have the feeling of like this is new and weird I'm curious to see like how much and how far out of my realm of experience can I go and I found I found the wall eventually so you know like I was talking about like the, the first time I was kind of hearing about radio people coming to punk shows but that's pretty inside baseball when the MTV unplugged thing came out did you get any like were you hesitant about that like you, you're talking about like not wanting to sell out and then you know wanting to be true to yourself and then also wanting to make a, you know like it's there's nothing wrong with wanting to make a living you know doing what you love but did you have any backlash for that like did you have any so like, I, I love that you said that, Matt. Like, I think you've been saying that since as early as I can remember. Maybe the first person who was kind of pragmatic about it without, while also having a certain ethos that I also feel like I have, which is the, the you know, that, that there is nothing wrong with wanting to have a career. There's nothing wrong with that. But there certainly felt like you had to be careful about it because you could, you could get, you'd seen other bands and other genres, like big genres, like you'd seen that thing crash and burn. Mm-hmm. And it was difficult to understand how, you, you know, there was no roadmap if you wanted this. If you wanted to have experiences where you knew they would be great life experiences, but you knew there would be people who judged you for right or wrong, but you just knew the judgment was coming. If you wanted to do things like with a real cavalier attitude, I think you could, if you don't give it some thought, you could, you could really 
kind of lose your your connection to what you why you started the whole thing. So I was very I was relatively considered in my in everything I did because I I wasn't trying to get the biggest become the biggest band in the world. Mm-hmm. I just I wanted to stay a band. I wanted to keep being in this band. Do you think that's how it was perceived? Like, do you think that that that's that's what I would I would assume knowing you that like you it was all very thought out and you never did anything that you were uncomfortable with. But do you think that like the public perception of of that came across, or do you think that like people made assumptions about he's going to MTV now? He's I think people made assumptions. I thought then I was aware that people were going to make assumptions mm. that oh okay he's he's doing this that we don't approve of but i i really had to like answer that to myself like do i do i need approval to go and have this experience i don't i don't know that i needed their approval but i was aware yeah that there was disapproval you weren't drinking I, believing all your own press clippings and thinking you were what's that called eat, drinking your own kool-aid no like, i was not drinking my own Kool-Aid. <laughs> i was i was but i was i also didn't want to sell out mm-hmm. like that's different than like being than like not wanting to sell out is different than not wanting to be perceived as a sellout well that, i just didn't want to sell out i mean it kind of boils down to that like what, for whatever that that's defined differently by every person, right? Whether yeah. you're judging somebody else's actions or whether you're have, doing your own, you know, guiding your own career, like that's really perceived in the, on an individual scale. I think for the I most th- part, I completely agree with you. I mean, the only person who can decide if you if you sold out is, is you. You know, yeah. Like, but that, I wish I'd, uh, somebody had said that to me early on. I don't think but, I. I don't think I understood it until. But you have. To, but older. it's also it's a better learned lesson if you learn it on, uh, as you for yourself as you go. Right. Totally, I agree. One of the things that like like when you say like you didn't want to sell out and that's like the the decision that you have to make for yourself you know internally i remember coming to that like i I, i've never thought of it in terms of like selling out i more thought of it as like okay what do i want this to be what am i willing to do like it was less about perception and more about i I often say like i didn't want us to be starbucks i wanted us to be maybe a local really artisanal coffee shop that did really good high quality stuff and everybody made a living off of it. But I remember when we did that Honda Civic tour with you, just seeing all of the shit you had to do, like all the radio promos and like interviews. And then like, there were people like, I remember you and I were sitting down like in the parking lot and people were like trying to like take pictures of you, like almost like pop, not paparazzi, they were fans and they're, you know, they love you and that's great. But it is, it was a sort of like loss of level of privacy that I was like, okay, this is not what I want. <laughs> you know, like, this is not like, I, and I, I kind of, it's kind of interesting. Cause like what you were saying about learning stuff from like us and, and Trevor, like I, I learned a lot about myself from you going through that whole, like, uh, like kind of. I guess lack of loss of privacy. You know, I remember you started having to have bodyguards and stuff like that. And I don't know, that must've been strange. It was strange, particularly the, the bodyguard thing. That was really weird. There were other reasons to at play than just like mass popularity for, for having bodyguards. But anyway, I'll jump off that for a second. So you said something interesting that, that had my wheels spin in there for a second. Lack of privacy and all the things I had to do, all the work, all the, all the things I had to do for radio promotion or what have you. All of that just, it occurred, it seemed to me like that was my, that was my job. And then the show was my, my joy. It's like kind of my off time, what you do after work. That's a cool way to think of it. It was probably modeled to me somewhere along the line, you know, by somebody else, but I'm not sure. I can't, I can't say who it was, but that's, that's just how it, that's why it didn't overwhelm me. Cause it just felt like, okay, well, I'm just at work right now. There's all this stuff. Everybody's got to get a job eventually. Right. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't be like a loaf about forever. And I felt like that was my, if I was going to do the other thing, which was the show, I probably had to do like a job. I always thought from the get go before I was banned that toured, you know, when I just had, you know, shows on the weekend somewhere, like you just do your, your job affords you the opportunity to play live music. So here's something I would tell you though, about all that experience. One thing that I thought was special about Vagrant Records and is remains special and unique to Vagrant Records to me is that I think they were considerate of what the, each band was going through, how far they might be able to take each band, you know, how far each band wanted to go. At the same time, they were like fostering, I don't think, you know, I think that spirit of camaraderie that we all had could be damped down by like, it only takes really like one thing or it takes one (laughs) dickhead. It just takes one dickhead for the whole thing to fall apart. Uh And I think that, you know, they weren't that dickhead. You know, that was a beautiful thing because usually it's like the label. Oftentimes it's the label that's kind of the dickhead and they just weren't the dickhead in my estimation. And I'm just speaking about that time. I can't really speak to like, once I was off the label, I don't know what other people's experiences are. But it seemed like they kept putting out my friends' bands. So it seemed like they 
it continued to be, you know, the same mindset of like, we just, we just want these bands to succeed. Do you feel it was a, in that, in that spirit of like kind of knowing, trying to know what each band needs? Do you think that they knew when they had finally gotten to a point that they had done all they could do for you? So I remember John and, and Rich sat me down somewhere to talk about like, at that point, they had put out some incredible records by my friends' bands. And we're putting out another one for most of them. But I think that, that they were at a point where with my, with my band, where I think they thought that, I mean, I, I'd love to be able to know what they thought. I can't wait to ask them these questions one day. But I remember thinking at the time that they wanted me to do as well as I might be able to do so badly that that included like getting in help, see the record grow or, mm-hmm. or seeing some of the bands that they thought they couldn't do the level of work that would be, it's a lot of work to keep up with a record that's doing well. Mm-hmm. And I, I know some of the bands were like thinking about leaving the label and they were like behind it. And that's just the, if you're graceful with the bands that are, you know, growing to a point where you're like, well, at some point I'll get that big as a machine, you know, this label, but you know, my, my little, you know, six cylinders and, or, you know, whatever, that's a bad analogy. You know, maybe one day I'll be able to do as well as a company for what this record needs. But maybe I'm not there yet. But I'm going to make sure that they get someplace that they can do that. Or I'm going to get the help in that I need. I think that like oftentimes record labels can get kind of petty and start to kind of feel like you wouldn't be a success if it wasn't for the label. I don't think that that's true. I think it's a partnership for sure. Yeah, Vagrant was never like that. Like they were never like, you know, even when it, when, you know, there was the whole like Vagrant America tour and it was sort of this, I think Rich kind of, I wanted it to maybe become a bigger, like, you know, a yearly tour or something like that, that it didn't really happen, but it still felt like it was in every, like it was still, they still cared about everybody else's best interest. And it wasn't like just about building the vagrant brand. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's really unique. I haven't dealt with very many record labels, but you know, and actually I, I feel we're with polyvinyl right now. And I feel a real, really strong early vagrant vibes with everybody at polyvinyl. And it's part of the reason that I was just like, yeah, this, this will work. And, you know, but like I have so many friends with stories of record labels they were on. were just like, when it was time for them to move on, the label got shitty about it, you know, and either demanded a bunch of money or demanded some sort of, I don't know what, I don't know how, how in depth of that I can go, but it's just, a, it was a really unique thing about Vagrant that I think it was just cause they, it, and it is very similar to like what you're talking about with like Fiddler where, cause she would just put out shit that she liked and people she was friends with. And that was all it ever, was ever expected to be. You know what I mean? And it, yeah. I don't know. It, it, it was like people who really understood that it was a partnership and who cared about people and cared about the bands and, and really liked. I think that sums it up. I absolutely think. I just don't, I never saw some, you said, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think you said that you never felt Vagrant trying to make uh, their identity on the backs of some other band or something like that. If I'm summarizing correctly, part of what you said. And I never saw that when I was a smaller band. When I was a smaller band of Vagrant, I never saw them acting like those bigger bands that I looked up to, that they made those bands. They just always seemed like they felt lucky to be a part of something cool. Mm-hmm. with that record that that they that that had gotten popular as much as they did with the record that didn't got popular by some other band get popular by some other band and as i got bigger i felt that attitude never changed from them that i was the biggest i was going to be on vagrant you were the biggest you were going to be on vagrant saves a say saves a day not going trio were the biggest they were going to be during their vagrant tenure and it was all the same time yeah and and i don't think that the vagrant guys to me no one at that label seemed to have this arrogance about them even in that moment that about their own label even in that moment so it was time for Vagrant to get some help. Pro- did Dashboard go to Interscope proper? Um, he did. He he went there actually after the first Vagrant record, okay. but because we had a deal with him. I mean, honestly, Interscope bought us because Jimmy Iovine was obsessed with getting Dashboard. So yeah. that's how that worked, was that um, Chris signed directly to Interscope, but we would still, for all intents and purposes, it would still be on Vagrant. Um, but Interscope, you know, we're paying massive Interscope dollars for things dashboard related. So, so let us, they let us handle it. Of course, there was some blowback from this. Did you ever feel any resentment from anybody once that steamroller started really rolling? You know, like, because it, yeah. it did take us. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I don't remember feeling resentment from bands on Vagrant, but I remember okay. feeling resentment. That isn't to say that nobody thought that way. I just don't remember it coming my way from, well, from, that was, from the bands. That was the thing. It was more like when 
the juggernaut of your career started really taking hold and vagrant. And it was kind of like, it did become harder to get people on the phone. And it was kind of like this weird thing of like, I'm really happy for you, but I really wish I could get people on the phone. At the same time. You know, like yeah. so you're kind of conflicted. And I don't think that that's bad. And it's like, you know, and we've talked about it and ultimately like everybody had to do their own thing. Yeah. It, it can only really exist in that little that little golden age moment kind of at the beginning i guess like it's like no if there was if there were resent if there was resentment towards me from other bands because they couldn't get people at the label on the phone and things like that or they couldn't even define it as a reason you know but they suddenly realized you know they said we're having this experience where they were like well this isn't as easy as it was you know i didn't i don't know that i knew that at the time i that, i don't think I don't think anybody ever felt negatively towards you. Yeah, I, could, I don't, I, could, I don't, I, I can't speak to how anybody else felt. Yeah. Um, you know, like you, but I remember, you know, now I don't remember. I remember that Vagrant had some, probably had, I remember that Dashboard had like growing pains. Mm-hmm. And I remember trying to figure out how to navigate waters that were, had once been so familiar to me. It's like both with the, you know, like um, both with the bands, you know, like I think the bands that we, I don't know if this is, I think this has to be unique to us. Our scene, I think, where I would have bands that would open for me, they would get more successful than me. Mm-hmm. They would then have me open for them, and all parties would be super happy. So then I, long before I was doing well, like a lot of the bands that were on Vagrant, that were like the friends we were talking about earlier in our conversation, a lot of the bands that would I would that would have me open for them for tours, I would I had become a little bit more successful then, and I would be able to invite them to open for me, and they would do it, and they'd be happy. They'd seem happy to do it, and our friendship dynamic didn't change just mm-hmm. because the person that was playing last changed. So I always appreciated that. I always felt that way. Like you opened for my side project in 2001 and yep. then ghetto kids are opening the, the Honda tour and, 2004, which was by far the biggest thing I had ever been a part of. And it was still like, hey, Chris, we're out of beer. Can I take one of your beers? <laughs> you know, like yeah. it wasn't like weird. It was just, you know, I don't know if I, if I certainly hope, don't hope you don't think I was taking advantage of our friendship, but to get that beer. No, yeah, to get that so, beer. <laughs> I, but here's the thing. What, the weirdest part of that whole thing is I don't, you know, where we didn't think it was weird. I think that that's weird that none of us thought it was weird. <laughs> You know, I, I guess think, in I hindsight, think that's my favorite yeah. part of the whole deal. That's my favorite. That's my favorite thing to discover. Looking back, is that we didn't we didn't think this was like like the the whole thing wasn't going to fall apart simply because none of us thought it was weird. Well, I've never thought about it that way. It is fucking weird. <laughs> that's so strange. I just can't imagine that happening in many other scenes. No, I don't. I, I mean, I've not only even been in my scene, but I I just don't think. I don't know, but I don't I mean, think it happens in other scenes. Not even in other like punk rock scenes. You know, like maybe the early days of grunge in Seattle. You know, maybe. like when they all lived together and. You know, Chris Cornell and whoever. I don't know. But well, we could have a con- long conversation about just this, man. I would love to figure out what other scenes had that <laughs> feeling. That'll have to be our side project podcast. When Chris's stuff starts really blowing up, were you feeling like resentment from it, like the other bands on the label? I mean, I, I guess like what my, my take on it and when I've talked to other people in other bands about it is that like no one's like upset at Chris about it, you know, mm-hmm. or not even upset with, with Vagrant, but it is get to a point where it's just kind of like, you guys are fucking swamped dealing with this this dude's, you know, meteoric rise to superstardom. And like, you know, hey, we're still here, you know, <laughs> a little bit of that. Right. Um, yeah, we did. It, I mean, depending on on the band in question, I, I think I think it was a thing of like it does go back to that whole kind of rising tide lifts all ships. But the fifth the, the thing with Caraba was it was just became such a and a bigger thing. It took on a life of its own. It was yeah. beyond Vagrant Records or punk rock or the indie scene or anything else, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that we were kind of trolling in waters, which, you know, while I was ecstatic for Chris and, you know, I was his manager and we were his label, um, it was a little bit like, okay, we're, we're now like in a place where I never really envisioned us and never really wanted to be. And, and it was special. Mm-hmm. He won the, that MTV award. I was kind of like, oh shit, there's no going back. I never really want, I didn't want to be a major label, you know, <laughs> and I didn't want to be in the mainstream. I thought everything we did was supposed to be counter to the mainstream and not that Chris changed his music to, to fit that, especially, no. early, you know, just doing what he did. So yeah, we got some, we got some, and I honestly, you know, being totally frank, I think he got 
some kind of hazing and kind of frozen out by some of the bands when he was coming up, you know? Because he remember he was the opening act and he was doing ridiculous numbers in merch and the crowd was going nuts for him. And then some of the bands that would follow him, I think that that did take an effect. And and it, it, I think it wore on Chris a bit. Um, I think, you know, he came to reconcile it and, and just kind of concentrate on what he was doing. But it, it, I think he really wanted to be part of that, you know, that thing that we all had. And, and it wasn't his fault that he was getting that big, you know, but I think that he did get kind of, uh, like I said, a little bit, a little bit of took the slings and arrows from some of his label mates during that, especially during the first initial rise when he was really starting to come up. Chris never changed anything he did to be successful. The rest of the world just seemed to come around to what he was already doing. So if I, I want to share with you like an earlier memory from my experiences with Vagrant Records and the team that comprised, you know, putting out those records. So I came to Vagrant as like a fan of the records they had put out. They weren't a huge, they didn't have a huge catalog yet, but to me, they were like a purveyor of almost like I, 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 I had like a, I think Matt phrased it this way, where there's like some kind of like label identity. Mm-hmm. I just kind of knew I could trust the records they put out. Remember, Matt, they put out, like, I think I said five years on the street, and then they had the North by Northwest. No, was that them? That was that thing that Face to Face was on, like, really early on, where they did the Descendants cover. Yeah. So they just kept consistently putting out these smaller releases, but they were always good. Then they started putting out records by bands that I was already following and, like, was going to, you know, be a fan of for life, like Face to Face and the Get Up Kids. And then when I was in the group of bands that signed around the same time after the Get Up Kids, there was this air of excitement on my end anyway, that I was having this kind of chance to be a part of something. And I remember like verbalizing that to the the guys at the label, to John and Rich. And they were, I remember they kind of said like, make make sure you just like, don't coast. It's just, you know, if this is where you wanted to be, awesome. But like, like just keep thinking about like the work you're doing and that you're, you're just doing the best you can do. I remember we had that conversation kind of at this, at like on the, the day or, or afternoon that I was like signing the deal. And then I remember also the afternoon that I signed a Vagrant, I was calling home at the same time to reach the producer I worked with back home in Florida and asking him if he had availability to start recording the next day. And I was in California at the Vagrant offices and he was like, sure, uh, let's, let's do it. I mean, we, I had such a great relationship with James that I was, you know, he was like, who, well, who's putting out this, the record? And I told him Vagrant Records and he was like, cool, I don't, you know, I don't know them. And um, he said, but it sounds great. So I remember taking the red eye, not knowing what a red eye was. I remember that was a, another thing. Like they, <laughs> they were like, you can fly at nighttime. And I was like, what? And they were like, it's called the red eye. Okay. So they, so I signed the deal. I uh, made the call to make the record the next day. I had the songs already. And I remember calling my brother to be like, you got to meet me at the airport. You got to bring all my guitars, all three of my guitars. And then you got to drive me from Miami to Fort Lauderdale to James's house and drop me off there so I can start recording. And then I recorded for nine days, which was an enormous amount of time right, yeah. at, back in those days. I just couldn't believe the luxury of having nine days to record whatever, 10 or 12 songs. It was, yeah, it was pretty, like, I couldn't even, I didn't even know bands did that. I thought they only did records in a night or three. And I remember, you know, just those nine days like flying by and listening to the, you know, having the, the, the rough mixes and sending them to Rich and, and uh, John at the label. And then also to Andrew Ellis, my agent at the time, and also to Andrew Ellis, my agent, being like, well, it's done. So can we go back on tour? And that was part of the race too. I remember they, they told me to take 10 days, but then I would have had to cancel a tour, whatever tour I was supposed to go on at that, out on at that point. When I look back at that, it's a very chaotic week and a half. But at the time, it just felt like um, this ridiculously ample, endless moment of like, I get, you know, almost two weeks to make a record. <laughs> and and then I get to go back out on tour like immediately. Like, that's like the best. What what more could there possibly be? And then they had that record pressed and out it, within five weeks. And I remember thinking to myself, like, that's probably not how it usually goes. <laughs> No, it is not. Yeah. It's it, it's interesting. Thanks. Like we, when we signed there, we got to be out in LA for like a month to make the record. And wow. we were, and it wasn't like, we weren't spending a ton of money. We just, you know, we were sleeping at Kevin Kusatsu's house, you know, on the floor and stuff. And I just remember thinking like, it is just a luxury to have like just time and not like an unreasonable amount of time. I mean, month is a lot, but like you can totally, it's like labels at the time was just kind of like, you know, you were kind of dependent on like almost just on recording the record yourself and then they would put it out it was just nice to have someone who was just like yeah you just need a little bit of breathing room so that you can do your thing and 
the end product will be, the record will be stronger because of it. And I think that it's kind of a, a strange, like it's almost like a leap of faith that they had to take at that time. I don't know how it was for you. And, and um, I also spent a lot of nights sleeping on Kevin's floor. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know that I said, talked about Kevin enough because I didn't, I, I wasn't sure what we were supposed to or not supposed to talk about. I guess I came in a little know, knowing what you guys were trying to get, catch with the, the catalog. So I never got the mm-hmm. idea that, you know, you were saying like, it seemed like everybody there was the A&R, like everybody mm-hmm. was important. And, you know, I would say like the, the specifically the people that were there to like monitor the quality of the record that was being turned in. It's probably Kevin and Rich. They're, like every, everybody else was there to kind of curate the thing afterwards, make sure everybody they knew knew about it. But coming into the label, I think it was mostly Kevin and Rich who probably were the ones that were shaping each of our abilities to have a, our creative moment without interference, but also making sure that we did something that was like good, like great work, our best work. That's really what I th- felt like they were giving us an opportunity to do. Like, I didn't think that everywhere you went was giving you your opportunity. They were giving you their best opportunity for you to do your best work. And I really think that came from Rich and Kevin and their view of what a great record was to begin with. And I think part of that was like, you know, there I got like a very, very few check-ins during that that one week, that week and a half that I was making the places you have come to fear the most. Probably the singularly least involvement I, I had um, from late Vagrant Records or, you know, later or any other record later or any records before. It was just like, yeah, go in. And, and the only thing I got for a check-in occasionally was, do you need anything? And there was this open-ended nature too, to the record. We're like, to the recording process, like I felt too, like if if it wasn't good enough, and I don't mean like them saying like, we don't like these songs, we don't like the production choices. I just meant like, if they thought like, you know, if something sounded weird, like, man, that microphone probably was broken and nobody knew it. I felt like Kevin would tell us mm-hmm. later when he heard the song. And I felt like they were going to give us the opportunity to correct that later. That was the biggest part of me going in there with with this kinetic energy into the studio was like I, I knew I could I could sort of let myself go into the moment because I knew that if I didn't capture it or if there was a better way to do it later, they, they would say so. And it was like as good as knowing they were going to pay for the record. It was like knowing, hey, if we don't get it right or if you don't think you got it right, one, we'll t- you tell us and two, we'll tell you. And three, we'll be here to make sure you get the opportunity to, to do it better. I didn't know that they were showing me something that I would later find to be like rare. I do think that that's very rare. And it was very much to the uh, irritants of John Cohen, because whenever you have to go back and do something that you didn't quite get right, you have to pay for it. <laughs> you know, it's true. And, and he would, like, I think that- Cohen would be was... like, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. You don't need to go back in. <laughs> I had those conversations too, where that was the opinion I got. This is good enough, right? <laughs> I can see the look on Kevin's face. I can see it in my mind that if he heard that sentence, this is good enough, right? From John Cohen. He would... I can see the face he would make. Or, I mean, Rich too, you know, but Kevin especially. Yeah. But there was somebody there and that was what was beautiful. You had one guy who was like, look, we have to make sure we can keep doing this financially. Yeah. And it was, and he was really like charmingly irritable about that. <laughs> but we, we would all just make fun of him. And he, but that was the thing. He was in on the joke and he was like, yeah, this is kind of what I do here. And it's funny. I don't like it either, but I'm still going to do the job. That's it for this episode of Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. On our next episode, we will begin to tell the story of Alkaline Trio, so be sure to subscribe and rate it on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for Muse Formation and executive produced by Fred Feldman and Andrew Ellis. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.